these headlines. Here's the first one. Bishop denies resurrection. Second one. Church leader found guilty of fraud. Number three. Sex scandal in the church. Sex scandal in the church. These are media headlines taken from the Sydney Morning Herald or the Daily Telegraph in the last five years. Bishop denies resurrection, sex scandal in the church, church leader guilty of fraud. And there's stories of church leaders and high profile leaders who, who by, their, by their teaching and by their behaviour they're denying the truth. Church leaders who, who bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into disrepute. But the thing is those headlines, they could have been written 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago and even 2,000 years ago. Because the church leaders in Ephesus that Paul is writing to, the elders there were were causing a scandal. And we saw in chapter 1 that they were promoting controversies and teaching false doctrines. And and chapter 4 tells us they are hypocritical liars. And just look at chapter 6. Chapter 6 verses 3 to 5. If anyone teaches false doctrines and doesn't agree with the sound instructions of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited, he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant frictions between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. That's a picture of the Ephesian church. There's wrong teaching, there's squabbling, there's speculation, there's foolishness, there's envy, there's slander and it's leaders, church leaders who are perverting the gospel. The church in Ephesus was was no different to the world. And the things that the world did, the church did. And the things that the world taught, the church leaders taught. And the church of God, if you want, it's lost its identity. Now why is that so shocking? Why is it so shocking when the church is no different to the world? Well look how Paul describes the church in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Verse 15 if I'm delayed you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in in God's household which is the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of the truth you see the church the the local gathering of believers the people of God gathered together is what is called the, the pillar and foundation of the truth in God's wisdom if you want he has chosen to leave his truth with a body of people and what we teach and the way that we live will either promote the truth or deny the truth. And that's why he says in verse 16, the mystery of godliness, in another way of saying the gospel, the gospel is great. And he quotes to him in verse 16, Jesus appeared in the body, the pre-existent Jesus stepped into our world and Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. At the beginning of his ministry, the Spirit descended on him and said, this is my son. And Jesus was seen by the angels at his resurrection and and Jesus was preached among the nations verse 16 the gospel went out and Jesus was believed on in the world people responded Jesus was taken to glory and that's the truth about Jesus he lived, he died, he rose, he ascended and the church in God's wisdom the church is a place that's been entrusted with that truth and that's why church leadership is so important you know we're not talking about a club who, whose membership might drop and we're not talking about a company that might go through hard times we're talking about God's pillar and foundation of truth and you know the trustworthy saying of chapter 1 that 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's through the church that that truth will be proclaimed. And it's through the church that the world sees that truth of chapter 2 that, that God wants all people to be saved. You see, the church is God's chosen means of, of proclaiming the truth and, and protecting the truth. And so when the, you know, the character and the behaviour of church leaders is so horrendous and so worldly and, and so godless, then the gospel is distorted. And when the lives and integrity of the leaders are under question, you know, when it's, they say one thing in the pulpit and they say another thing in the pub, then truth is at stake. And you know, it's, it's like a, an earthquake that, that, that comes and shakes the foundation. It's like a, a hammer that chips away at the pillars and truth is shattered. You know, and rather than being the one place where the gospel of Jesus shines in a dark world, badly led churches, leaders who distort the truth, who turn people away from Jesus. And the question tonight is, how is a church going to protect the truth? How does a church protect God's truth? And the answer is by godly leaders. By sound leadership, by appointing men and women to positions of, of elders and deacons of godly character. Let me ask you, what do you look for in a leader? What do you want from your leader? You know, if, we, if I was to lead this church, who, who, what type of person do you want to lead in this church? And my fear is that we've bought into a, a corporate mentality, a business style of leadership. So the overseer needs to have a, a dynamic personality, the academic high flyer, the visionary, the, the cutthroat, powerful leader someone that people will follow and we, we talk about promotion and success and, and resumes and results and we import the business mentality into the church and what's interesting here in 1 Timothy 3 is that Paul doesn't specify qualifications he doesn't talk about qualifications he lists qualities of people and there's no job description there's no list of roles to be performed it's a list of attributes or, or character traits and it's almost entirely about moral integrity. And you know, the shock when you read these verses, as I read them this week, the shock in this verse is this, that there's nothing out of the ordinary. These qualities are what, are what you'd expect from every Christian. Not just the elder, not just the deacon, but every Christian. These qualities, if you want, are what you'd want to see in every member of your church, not just the leader. And that's the point, friends, because... These aren't, ex these aren't exceptional qualities. They're just essential qualities. They're not exceptional qualities, but essential qualities. Because those in leadership have a, a huge responsibility to, to teach and to model and to exhibit these qualities. Because, listen carefully, if the leaders aren't like this, then those under their care won't be. If the men and women who lead in the church are not like this, then the people who they teach and they govern and they pastor will not be like this. And as we look at this passage tonight, it should help us, you know, appoint leaders and it should challenge those of us who are leaders and challenge people who aspire to be leaders. And it should transform the way that we see our church leaders. So I'll start with a word for the elders. It's there in chapter 3, verse 1. Look at it with me. Here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. 
If anyone sets his heart on being an, over, an overseer or an elder, he desires a noble task. Note that everything in this, par- in this paragraph is masculine. And the assumption is that the, that the men will be the overseers, the episcopos if you want. The overseer is the man who, who watches over God's people, the man with the authority to, to watch over and care for and teach and protect God's people. It's the, the man with the authority, if you want, to teach and to govern a local gathering. It's not the bishop, you know, as we see him today, it's, it's the minister of a local church, the pastor teacher, if you want. Or it's a group of elders, men who are set apart in the local gathering for teaching and for governing. And that's why it's masculine. If you were here last week, chapter two taught, chapter two taught us that, that men are to teach in the public gathering. Men are to be the elders. If you weren't here last week, please listen online. It's on the, on the website, chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. So here at Church by the Bridge, you could argue that the elders are me and, and Mark and maybe Ben and Des, or if you think your, your Bible fellowship group is a church, maybe your, your male leader's there. But please note, this is a task, first one. It's a task, not a status, not an office. It's a role defined not by a title but by the work that you do. And Paul says in verse 1, you desire a noble task. It's not necessarily enjoyable. It's not necessarily financially rewarding but it's good work because the gospel needs protecting. So who are you going to look for? Three quick things. He must be, the first one's the longest. He must be above reproach. Above reproach in character. Now, given the truth is at stake, the elder must be above the approach both with the insider and the outsider. Look at verses 2 and 7, they're kind of the bookends of the passage. The overseer must be above the approach, and then flick down to verse 7. He must have a good reputation with the outsider. It's like the headline, the title page. He says, he must be blameless. You know, his observable conduct must be a beyond accusation it's that there's no one inside the church who should point the finger and say oh that man he's a hypocrite and there's no one outside the church who should have any, any dirt on this man he must live in a way that, that no one can think badly of him or the gospel or the Lord Jesus or, or the church it's not saying this man needs to be blameless or, or faultless or perfect I mean, otherwise no one could be an overseer if he was perfection. But he needs to be above reproach, above question. And especially in his marriage. Look at that in verse 2. He must be the husband of but one wife. Now, I assume that Paul starts with, with marital faithfulness. Because it was an issue then, just as it is today. You know, almost half of all marriages end in divorce and and the figures are, are, are a little different for church leaders and you know the adultery and the office fling and the secret liaison it's amongst church leaders as well in 1988 the, the leadership journal asked church ministers this question since you've been in local church ministry have you ever done anything with someone not your spouse that was sexually inappropriate how many people said yes to that it's a staggering 23%. It's almost one in four people. And that's just the ones who are being honest. You know, during a two-year period in the States, the pastors of one denomination resigned from 10% of churches because of sexual misconduct. 
And since I've left college, three people that's in the last six years in my year at college have left ministry because of sexual misconduct. And that's just the sexual side, isn't it? What about the emotional affairs or the over-dependent friendships with women? And you know, whilst false teachers in Ephesus were forbidding marriage and seducing women, Paul is saying the elder, the true man of God, he must be faithful to his wife. A husband of but one wife. I don't think, I don't think Paul is excluding single men from being elders, and not just because I'm single, but he himself was single. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul promoted singleness. I, I don't think he's excluding remarried widows. Because again, 1 Corinthians 7 says it's a good thing. He could be forbidding remarried divorcees. That's a possibility. But I think Paul is just saying the elder must be faithful to his wife. That's how the, the, the phrase is used in chapter 5 verse 9. He's saying the elder must be, have an unblemished reputation when it comes to his marriage. You know, there's something profoundly countercultural about the man who really loves his wife. You know, the man who has eyes only for his wife. And the man who longs to present his wife perfect in Christ. And the man who doesn't look around for the younger models. And the man who, who doesn't flirt with the world. And the man who confides only in his wife and not his secretary. And the man who depends on his wife and, and not the girl at the coffee shop. And the man who longs to give his whole being to his wife emotionally as well as physically. And the man who's longing and desires to see his wife flourish. That is countercultural. But it's that man who should be the elder in church. The man who loves his wife sacrificially and works hard at his marriage. Because our world is full of broken people. Broken people and emotionally damaged people. And the church should model marital faithfulness because the gospel will shine. You know, if a man has been unfaithful to his wife, he's not suitable for the office of leader or elder. Why? Because, because sexual immorality rocks the church and it damages the gospel and the outsiders point the finger. Of course he's forgiven, of course he can progress in life but he shouldn't be an elder. And I want to urge you to pray for your elders and pray for your leaders, especially in terms of their marriage, that there will be men who will be faithful to their wives. What else does Paul say? Verse 2, they're to be tempered. That's clear-minded, uh, free from every sort of excess. They're to be self-controlled, verse 2. That's a, a disciplined mind, a disciplined body. They're to be a man of good judgment, respectable, with dignity. And he must be above reproach in hospitality. Hospitality here in verse 2 is more than just having people over for dinner. Hospitality is about opening up your home, opening up your life to people. It's literally a love for strangers. You know, in his early church, there were, there were no bed and breakfast, there were no backpackers, and there was no cheap hotels. So the, the church was a place where the, the, the elder, the leader, should open up his home. You know, the professional elder keeps his office life and his home life separate. But the, the biblical elder, he shares his whole life, including his home. There are no secrets. Above the approach hospitality, he must be, verse 3, not given to drunkenness. His drinking habits should be under control. The Bible doesn't forbid alcohol. The elder doesn't need to be a total abstainer, but he needs to be careful. You know, I've been really challenged by 
a comment that was made when I arrived in Sydney at about six months after I arrived and a friend visited from the UK and he said this, it struck me, he said you know, what strikes me about the church in Sydney is that you just drink you drink like no other Christian church I've been to like you're no different from the world and I think he's right you know, our attitude to alcohol needs to be different from the world and it starts with the leaders they need to model abstinence control in their drink why? because drunkenness leads to violent behaviour that's there in verse 3 not violent but gentle not quarrelsome you know the elder is the man who is considerate who patiently spends time with people listens to people he's gentle with them it's not a walkover he's not a wimp but neither is he a bully I mean, do, you know, do you know those church leaders who they lash out irrationally and they intentionally crush people with their words and they're always being contentious and they're, they're always looking for the argument that's not gentleness that man is not the elder type the elder is a gentleman who is sharp theologically he's sound in the faith but he's loving he's reasonable he's gracious and let me say if, if sex is one area of downfall for leaders the other big area is money isn't it money and that's why he says here in chapter 3 sorry chapter 3 verse 3 not a lover of money the elder of a church shouldn't covet things of the world you know in Paul's day people taught for selfish gain and you know it's easy as a leader to, to talk about money all the time and we're not to be men whose lives or whose ministry are shaped by money you know we shouldn't be concerned about the size of our, our bank balance and our giving should reflect our confidence in God and the gospel and, and no one should be able to make accusations about the finances of the elder as he you know, drives his Audi TT wearing his Armani suit to his holiday house at the Central Coast now are you building a picture of this man of God that's to lead a church it's not your flashy boastful dominant city slicker it's not your powerful, money-seeking, immoral man. This is a, a man faithful in marriage, orderly in life, hospitable, sober, gentle and generous. And you know, the watching world might not agree with his teaching, but they can't question his character. And if they can, verse 7 tells us that he will fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The devil will trap him and lure him into worldliness. And not only will he be disgraced, but so will the church and so will the gospel and so will the truth. And that's the elder, above approach. But, you know, there's one quality that, that not all Christians will have. Not all, even the deacons mentioned in verse 8 will have this quality. There's one odd thing in his list. I don't know whether you spotted it. It's there in verse 2. It's not really a quality, but more of a skill end of verse 2 he must be able to teach verse 2 the elder must have a skill of teaching let me tell you about a guy called uh, Gavin Gavin was a guy I was at, uh, at Moore College with he was a, a businessman he was a very successful businessman he was a, a model husband he was a model man and he loved Jesus and he was a brilliant organiser he had a passion he had a vision and so people encouraged him to go to Moore College there was one problem with Gavin that he couldn't teach 
he had a great grasp of the Bible. He was phenomenal in terms of his knowledge, but he couldn't communicate. And so Gavin should never have been a leader, an overseer in the role of teaching. And you know, if truth needs protecting, we need people not just who know the truth, but who can teach the truth, who are able to teach the truth. See, how does a church who made a pillar and foundation of the truth, it's not, by, it's not just by a nice guy with a strong marriage, but by a nice guy with a strong marriage who can teach the truth. How is a church going to refute error by teaching truth? There are many godly, wise men who know much about the Bible, but can they teach the Bible? It's not just about being eager, but able to teach. And can the outsider come in here and sit and listen and understand? So you've met the man, you've watched his life and you've listened to the sermon tape. How can you know this man is a man to lead a flock? The second quality of the overseer is that he must be able to lead his family. He must be able to lead his family. There's a link between family and church because the elder leads two families. He leads his own family and he leads God's family. So look with me at verse 4. He must manage his own family well and see that his children are obeying him with proper respect. If, if anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's family? It, it's a rhetorical question. He can't. He must manage his family well in a right way. It's not a dict- dictatorial leadership. It's a loving leadership. And so you've got to ask questions of the man like, does this man lead his family in a way of truth? Does this man lead his family in godly decisions? Does this man love his family and encourage him in the Lord? Does this man take care of his family, ensuring they don't fall into error? And do the children of this man obey him? I gather I've been told it's easy to get, get kids to obey you. It's easy to get kids to obey you. It's much harder to get kids to obey you with respect. You know, it's easy to get obedience with resentments, it's easy to get obedience with resistance, but obedience with respect, now that is good leadership. And as for the adolescents who, who's willing to hear the, the no, you can't do that, because they know that dad loves them. And the child who respects godly discipline, that is a man to be an elder. Not just the, an elder, every, every Christian father should manage his family well. But if you want someone suitable to lead a flock, look for the family man. He must be spiritually mature. Verse 6. He mustn't be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment of the devil. He mustn't be a recent convert. He must be knowledgeable and mature in the truth. Neil was a guy who was at a church in Oxford with me. He'd been a Christian for, for six months and Neil was keen. He was enthusiastic. He had amazing gifts of just communication and he was great with the youth and so he was made a youth leader very quickly and after two years he was at Bible college after five years he was ordained and it was only then that the wheels really came off it was only then that little things came to the surface about his life sins that he'd never dealt with and lifestyle issues he'd never dealt with and the sins that began to entangle him and you know Neil was actually a very proud man. He loved being up front. He loved teaching. He loved the, the control, if you want, over people. And his motives were all wrong. He was concerned not for the man Jesus Christ, but for the man Neil. And he should never have been asked to be a leader. He was too young in the faith. 
And that's what Paul is saying here, that if you have a recent convert who is the, the promoted to elder or leader, they pu- they're puffed up and they're proud. And, and let me ask you, how can, how can a teacher combat error if they themselves are young in a faith? And how can they make sure that the truth is taught when they themselves are not discerning? I'm sure that you, you know people who are fervent in their early days and you know, they become Christians and they soak up everything and they read every book and they talk to everyone about Jesus and they want to serve and they want to help and the temptation is to push that person into leadership and promote them into leadership positions but Paul says no, no, test them wait watch their life, watch their doctrine See, that's the man who you want to be leader of a church I want to say for those of us who are responsible for for appointing elders, what do you look for? If I was to ask you now to write down a list of of men in this church who you'd want to be seen to be teaching elders, I'd be fascinated as to what sort of people you'd write down. And my fear is that you would write down the, the extroverts or the popular people or the people who have great communication skills and they be very little about their character and their godliness and do you pray for people I mean do you pray for bishops as they make appointment to their elders and the ordination chaplains as they interview candidates here in Sydney pray they choose wisely and choose biblically but most of us here don't appoint elders and so, and we're not elders so how do these verses impact us can I suggest that they, they transform the way you view your ministers your elders you know do you actually pray for your leaders here at church and what do you pray for them I mean, I'm pleading with you really to pray not for me or for Mark or for the, the BFG leaders in terms of their abilities and their skills but for our character and I'm begging you to pray that, pray that we would grow in godliness. And I'm pleading that you, that you would pray for us that we would be men who, would, who are not proud and not arrogant, but we're gentle. Because the truth is at stake. And the devil's at work. And the devil longs for the church to be a laughing stock. And the way he does that is through leaders. And so I'm begging you to pray. Please pray for your elders. And secondly, and just much more briefly, a word, a word for deacons. Because not everyone will be elders. Not everyone should be elders. It's interesting that Paul never defines the, the duty or, or role of the deacons. There's no list of jobs a deacon should do or shouldn't do. Again, it's down to character, isn't it? Look at verse 8. Deacons likewise are to be men, worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Who are the deacons? They're people in a serving capacity. That's what the word deacon means. It means servant. So the the elders, they govern and teach. The deacons, they serve. The elders, they, they have the ministry of word and prayer. The deacons, they help and they administrate and they serve. And there's no, there's no mention of teaching in this list. That's the big difference. Sure, it's about character. Sincere, trustworthy, not drunk, faithful. 
they must be mature, they must be solid, but they don't need teaching gifts. That's the deacons, the mature Christians who selflessly serve. And I want to say it includes women. Women can be and should be deacons. I think that's there in verse 11. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect. Look down to the footnote, A. Deaconesses. Why do I think women should be deacons? Because there's no separate word in Greek for, for deacons or deaconesses. It's the same word, it's a neutral word. And, and that word for, for, for wife in, in verse 11 is just woman. In the same way, the woman or the, the female deacon are to be worthy of respect. And my other question is, you know, if, it, if it was wives here in verse 11, why does he single out the wives of deacons and not the wives of elders? Surely he'd want the wife of the elder to be a woman worthy of respect as well. And the deacon doesn't have a teaching role, so it's not inappropriate for women to be deacons. And if you read Romans chapter 16, Phoebe was a deacon, a woman was a deacon. So who are they? I think, I think they're, they're godly, mature men and women who, who in a way they relieve the elders of distractions. They, they divert the elders uh, towards ministry and word and prayer and these are the people who will serve. You know, they're the men and women who will they'll do the rosters and they'll coordinate the welcoming and the suppers and they'll, they'll deal with the property matters and the finance and the person who's gifted with the technical skills or the graphic design, they're deacons. And I guess that's our parish council or our ministry leaders like welcoming and supper and men and women in PA. And let me say we need them. I need them and we as a church need them. Because too many elders are, are burnt out and too many elders are expected to do everything. How do you appoint these deacons? It seems as you read the Bible that deacons are appointed as required. You know, So you need someone on a mission committee so you look for the person. Not necessarily the upfront, outspoken person, but the, the humble person, the godly person. You know, I'm not impressed by, by the person who is constantly pushing themselves forward. So, so look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm impressed by the wise, humble, godly people. And they need to be tested, verse 10. They must first be tested. We don't just give people responsibility, no matter how, how small, until we've watched their life and we've, we've watched their doctrine. And listen carefully, in a way a deacon needs to be someone who's already been a deacon before they're serving as a deacon, before they're named as a deacon. They must, all, they must already be deacons before they're named as deacons. They must be serving. So there are lots of deacons here at Church by the Bridge and I'm, I'm, I'm deeply thankful for the men and women who do serve, who, who God has raised up, but pray for them. You know, pray for the parish council. Pray for the, the ministry area leaders. Pray for their spiritual maturity. Pray for their moral integrity. Pray for their willingness to stand firm and not compromise. And pray that God would raise up many, many, many more men and women. Why is leadership in church important? It'd be interesting, if you walked down to the pub tonight, if you walked down to the Kirby Hotel tonight and said, What do you think of the church? What do you think of the church? I'm guessing that people down there would very quickly talk about hypocrisy. And why do they mention those kind of words? Because it's often the leaders, leaders who have publicly fallen and made the church a laughing stock. And you know, God in his wisdom has left the truth of the church. 
And we to make sure and pray that he would raise up men and women, elders and deacons, who would protect the truth and guard the truth and preach the truth. Remember God's heart, heartbeat, God's desire? He wants all men and women to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he's left that truth with you and me. Let's pray. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of Jesus, for the gospel. Father, we thank you that in your wisdom you've left that truth with the church. And I pray that you would raise up godly men and godly women into the roles of elders and deacons who, by their lives, model integrity. By their character, they're a good witness to you. And I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.